Tonight's reading is from Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown, and we're so glad that you've chosen to worship with us tonight. I don't know about you, but I was ugly crying over there, so I might need a minute <laughs> to collect myself, but um, we are glad that you're here. We're going to continue to worship by opening up the scriptures together and taking a look at the passage that Olivia just read for us. Uh, before I get into that, I want to bring your attention to these canvas bags that are in the back. Uh, starting tonight, we have this canvas activity bags for kids. They're in the back. They're for children. Um, so sorry, you have to be a child to get one. But um, if your kid regularly attends here, their name is on it. We also have some blank ones back there for guests as they come. But please take advantage of those. Feel free to even grab them right now, and then you can leave them in the back there. So big thanks to Melissa, our children's coordinator, for putting those together. Yes. As I said, tonight we are opening up Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, if you want to turn there with me. We are going through the book of Philippians, and we're taking a look at our true identity. We're talking about identity because that's what Paul talks about in the book, but also we think it's important for us as a church and as a culture to understand where our true identity comes from. Because as we look around at our culture, and even as we look around in the church, or as we look at our own lives— we see that we find our identity in lots of places, and it always disappoints. So, in fact, we're calling this recovering our true selves. Where does our true identity lie? Where can it be found? The question that I want to answer tonight is, what makes a Christian, a Jesus follower, any different than anyone else? Unfortunately, in our world uh, and in the media, Christians are seen as different But it is not always for the right reasons. In fact, it's not often for the right reasons. If you're like me, you cringe when Christians are talked about in the news or in TV shows or movies. It's very misleading, but sometimes it's too accurate. So tonight we're talking about what makes a Christian, a Jesus follower, any different. Is it the way they vote? Is it where they choose to worship on Sunday morning or Sunday evening? Is it based on what our parents did and it inheriting their faith? Is it based on the habits and routines of our life? Is it based on what we do or do not do? While in our time, Christians are sometimes known for the wrong reasons, in Paul's time and in the first century, the church was known from the rest of the world, but it was for a very different reason. They were known because of the way that they suffered. They were known because of the way they persevered through persecution, marginalization, and even 
martyrdom. If you chose to be a Christian in Paul's day, it often meant turning your back on family, country, and trade, and sometimes even giving your very life. This made Christians stand out. We too are called to stand out and to shine for the Lord. Some will have to leave the things that Paul and the other apostles left behind, but no matter what, we will have to suffer for the cause of Christ. As we suffer, we are called to shine for his glory. And tonight, Paul shows us how we go about doing that even amidst our suffering. If you want to put a tagline on tonight, what we are talking about is that citizens of heaven stand out. Citizens of heaven stand out. Would you pray with me? Father, you are so good to us. We are so grateful for this opportunity we have tonight to open your word. We're so grateful that we get to hear from you. God, we pray that you would continue this time of worship and this time hearing from you as we open the scriptures. God, we pray that you would speak exactly what you want to say to your church tonight. Father, this is not my church. This is no man's church. This is your church, and we desire to hear from you. We come to you expecting to hear from you tonight. We pray that you would tell us as children of God what we need to hear tonight. Father, we pray that you would show us where we need to be healed. We pray that you would show us where we need to be encouraged. We pray that you would show us where we need to walk in repentance, God. And God, most of all, we want to glorify you with everything that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been talking about this idea of citizens of heaven. And that that's where we really get our identity come if we are in Christ. We are citizens of heaven. The Bible also calls us sojourners in a land that is not our own. See, because of Christ and what he has done and because of him sending the Spirit and because of his resurrection, the kingdom of God is already here, but it is still coming. And as citizens of heaven, we live in this tension. And Paul has something to say about what that life, what that tension looks like here tonight. So if you would look with me at verse 12, we read, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We start with this passage uh, with the word therefore, which means we need to refer back to what we previously saw in Philippians 2, last week's message. Again, this letter of Philippians, it's a letter that was written written from beginning to end and read in the church beginning to end. We have the chapter headings and the verse headings and the, the series broken up into different sermons because we have a shorter attention span than they did. But if you look back at verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So when we see this word therefore, and we refer back to verses 9 through 11, and we see how verse 12 ends with this idea of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, Paul is teaching us something very important about discipleship and being citizens of heaven and where we find our identity. He is telling us that it starts with worship. It starts with worship. 
we are so quick to go to a passage like this and try to figure out what it means and figure out how it works and figure out at the end of the day what we need to do. If you're like me, you've got out your journal, you've got out your Bible, and you're just waiting to write down what I need to do. And at times, if I'm honest, I just want the preacher to skip ahead and tell me what to do. But before Paul gets there and before we get there, he says, being a citizen of heaven means you worship. You live a life of worship. You live a life with the desire that every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus is the one worthy of praise. And in fact, we're supposed to work out our salvation, which we'll talk about what that means in a moment, with fear and trembling, with a a sense of the holy, with a sense of the goodness and the holiness and the majesty and the power of God. If we miss the importance of worship, we will miss what Paul is trying to say, but more importantly, what God is trying to do in our lives. I so quickly want to run to application. I so quickly want the Lord to just tell me something to do. I so quickly want to run to theology or how I feel, and I forget that my life is supposed to worship God. Next, let's take note of the fact that he calls this church in Philippi, my beloved. Remember, a major theme of this letter is that they are partners in the gospel together. I love that Paul calls the people here, my beloved. Not just friends, not just fellow believers, but beloved. We'll see this throughout Philippians. We'll see it in other of Paul's letters, what he calls the church. It shows us what he believes about his brothers and sisters in Christ and the church of God. Then we get this phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Part of our salvation, a huge part of our salvation, is realizing that there is a holy God. It starts with realizing that God is holy and perfect and majestic, and he is without blemish. And he is the holy one. He is the first cause. He is the one that created everything, and he is the only one worthy of every knee bowing and tongue confessing that he is Lord, that he is God. So our salvation starts with realizing there is a holy God. The next realization we have to come to is we are not holy. We are not holy. We do not live up to his standards. We do not live up even to our own standards in the own ways we know we are supposed to live. And so we fall short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible teaches and that's what we experience every day. And in light of God being holy and we are not holy, in order to experience salvation, we need Christ. His righteousness, his substitutionary atonement, his imputed righteousness on our behalf. So our salvation consists of realizing there's a holy God, realizing we fall short of that glory, and realizing that we need the work of Christ on our behalf. Here, Paul is saying that for our sanctification— our daily growing more holy, our daily following of Jesus, we first need to realize that God is holy and worthy of our life and our worship. The next thing we very apparently see when we see his perfection and his perfect law and all the things that Paul and the other writers of scriptures tell us to do and all the ways that Jesus lived his life, we see that we fall short. And in order to grow more holy, we also have to see that Jesus is the only Holy One. Now, if you're paying attention, you see that the components of our salvation are also the components of our sanctification. 
Far too often, even though we can wrap our heads around what the gospel is and what we need to be saved, we then set that aside and get out the checklist and we see everything that we know we fall short in or we see everything that Paul tells us to do or as we see the ethics or the kingdom ways of Jesus, we then make our to-do list and we go about trying to do all the things. Here, Paul says we have salvation from what Jesus has done. It's based on what Christ has done, but then we go about working it out. So how do we go about working it out? First, the first thing that we need to realize is even built into the word salvation. We talked about this a little bit last week. I want to get into it a little bit more tonight because Paul does. The word salvation, when we hear that word, we often think about two things. What it means to be made right with God, being saved from hell, being saved from sin, being saved from ourself, being saved from the flesh. And then secondly, we make it personal and we think about our moment of salvation. When we prayed a prayer, when we checked a box, when we went forward, when we recognized that we needed Christ. When we hear the word salvation, that's what we think of. But Paul and the other authors of the New Testament never only mean that. And it's baked into this word, salvation. The word salvation in the Greek is soteria, soteria. And it was a common word in the Greek culture. And typically what you would use it for is if your loved one was ill and then had been restored to health. You would say that they were soteria. They had been saved from their illness. Whether they were headed for death or not, this was the word that you used. So baked into this Greek word is, of course, the idea of salvation, but also of security and health. Security and health. So when Paul writes about salvation, which he writes about a lot— He does not just mean our moment of salvation, and he does not just mean that we are saved from hell. He means that our entire life has been changed by what Christ has done for us. That the salvation that Christ has provided for us saves us from hell, saves us from sin, saves us from the flesh, but also gives us security and health. You can start to see how this may impact our everyday life, but Paul spells it out for us here in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There are two two schools of thought on this verse and this concept. Not only two schools of theological thought, but there are two schools of thought even as you see that. I I am sure you think one of two things. First, either God does the work of our sanctification that is totally up to him, or we do the work of our salvation. Either God does the work of salvation, or we do the work. And most commentaries, most theology that's written about this, and most Christians live as if only one or the other are true. But clearly, that is not what Paul is getting at, either in the original language or in the theology of the passage that he is writing right here. The best translation, the best literal understanding of what Paul is saying here is, the one who works the working in you is God. The one who works the working in you is God. See, the thing is that we need the will to obey God, and we need the energy that comes from God in order to do what God asks us to do. It is him from beginning to end, but he is empowering us. 
supernaturally, but in the real body that we have right now. Not some future version of ourselves, not some better version of ourselves, not when we get our act together, but because we are in Christ and his spirit lives in us. And because of that holistic view of salvation, the one who works the working in you is God. In this word work is the idea of energy. We get our modern day word energy from this Greek word for work. God is giving us the will. He is giving us the energy. He is empowering the obedience that he is calling us to. We need him willing in us and giving us the energy in order to be citizens of heaven and to walk out our citizenship, and to live holy lives. Any work that we do for God is empowered by God. Every action that we do that honors God is because he has saved us, because his spirit is in us, because anything we do that's good is ultimately for him. It is ultimately him that has to bring about the fruit. And at the end of the day, it is all for his glory. Because it says here, for his good pleasure. It ultimately glorifies God when we live this way. Him doing the work in us. We'll revisit this idea in just a minute. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Here, Paul is talking about this high theological idea of God working in us, of us working out our salvation, how our salvation and our sanctification are tied to the work of Christ, this very high idea, this huge concept. But then in verse 14, he is going to ground the example of it in a very street-level view of theology. This word that, this phrase that he talks about, do all things without grumbling or disputing, it's the word murmuring. Do all things without murmuring or disputing. It's the same thing that the Israelites were accused of in the Old Testament when they didn't like the food God provided them. They murmured against God, and then they murmured against Moses and Aaron. They murmured when Moses was on the mountain too long, going up to to get the law, and it caused them to make idols that they ended up worshiping. This murmuring, it's a street-level, everyday struggle, because unfortunately, Paul says a very inconvenient thing, that we are to do all things without murmuring. It's very unfortunate, right? Do all things without murmuring, or disputing, Paul, in the midst of this high theological passage, is telling us here at a street level is what this looks like. If you are citizens of heaven, if God's energy is working inside of you for his good pleasure, don't murmur against your leaders. And don't have disputes with one another in the church. This seems to be the only accusation that Paul has in the whole letter against the church in Philippi. Murmuring and disputing. He then says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Here, Paul is using the same language that Jesus used when he was talking about the Jewish people that did not believe in him. When we hear a twisted and or perverse generation, we think of 
the world out there or people that have never heard of God. But Jesus was talking about those that were Jews that said that they did not need to follow Jesus or that Jesus was not who he said he was and continued on in their law and their ways of trying to honor God. Here, Paul is talking about those same Jews. He's talking about a group of people probably known as the Judaizers, these people that were saying that Gentiles that came to faith then needed to be circumcised in order to follow Jesus. Basically, the long and the short of it is before Gentiles could follow Jesus, they had to become Jewish and then they could follow Jesus. Paul is saying that's a twisted generation. Don't listen to them. If you do not murmur and you don't dispute, you're going to stand out amongst those that claim the things of God but do not really follow Jesus. That's what he's saying here. The outcome of this way of life, the outcome of letting God do the work in us and not murmuring or disputing is that we will shine. That's what he says here. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. You're going to stand out. People are going to know that you're different. Let's go back to the introduction when I was talking about all the wrong ways that Christians stand out or the stereotypical ways that we see Christians portrayed. Here, Paul is literally in this example just saying Christians stand out because they don't murmur against other people. He chooses this because it seems to be going on in the church in Philippi, but I think there's a couple of other reasons. The first one is that citizens of heaven don't need to murmur about anything. Citizens of heaven don't have anything to complain about. Over the last couple of weeks, I talked to two sisters in this church who reminded me that we should have an abundance mindset. They both use the same word, abundance, because we know the one who owns everything. Citizens of heaven have nothing to murmur about. Also, they have nothing to dispute. They can be of one accord, one mind, one soul. Remember we talked about this last week? Because they are in Christ together. The second reason that Paul talks about this being something that will help us shine is that when we don't murmur or dispute, it stands out because the world murmurs and disputes. Our unity, just as Jesus said, shows that we are his disciples. And then right baked in here, he says that we are children of God. Children of God. He is saying here that children of God are those that are in Christ, not just the Jews. He's saying you don't have to be Jewish to be a children of God. Those that are in Christ are children of God. And this was good news for the church in Philippi. Do you remember back to the first sermon uh, of the, the series through Philippians? We looked at how the church was started. It was started with three Gentile people. And we have to assume because of where it was and because of how it started, it continued to be a multi-ethnic, multi-language church. And here Paul is giving them the good news that they can be called children of God. This is good news for us as well. That we can be called children of God. We don't have to become Jewish first. We don't have to obey all the laws first. We don't have to clean up our act first. We can be called children of God because of something that's already been done for us. What Christ has done for us. And then it tells us something else about 
citizens of heaven, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Holding fast to the word of life. How do we allow the Lord to do the work that he so desires to do in us for his good pleasure? By holding fast to the word of life. More literally, what he is saying here is hold fast to the word that brings about life in you. He's talking about the words about who Jesus is. He's talking about the scriptures that tell us the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done and tells us what the kingdom of God is like. He is saying these words, they bring you life. This is where life comes from. Not all those other false places that we think life comes from. And they needed this word and we need this word today. Because we have substituted so many other things for the word of life. We have with our time, with our energy, with our efforts, with our minds, shown that we think life comes from all kinds of other places. Around the holidays, I deleted Twitter from my phone. I made a deal with my kids. They stopped watching a YouTube show and I got rid of Twitter off my phone. And now in the mornings, I read like fiction or a novel or something to help myself wake up for 30 minutes. And then I get into the word. And I feel like my day is starting with more life. Because it is. I'm hiding the word of God in my heart. I'm clinging on to the words that bring about life. We far too often look for life outside of the one thing that can give us life. And then we pray these desperation prayers to God that praise God he hears. But we cry out to him and say, why am I not finding life in all these other things? Paul says here, we need to hold fast to the one thing that does bring life. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the conclusion of a section that Paul started in chapter 1, verse 27 where Paul talks about his suffering and what they should be praying for and how they should be thinking about his suffering. And he continually goes back to, I'm glorifying God and it's to the church's greatest good that I should suffer. He uses this analogy here or this word picture of his life being poured out as a drink offering. The drink offering is not just something Paul dreamed up. It was something that the people of God did in the Old Testament. It's where the idea of libations come from. Sometimes we use that as a, like a, a term or a euphemism for alcohol or strong drink. Libations were a sacram, uh, sacramental act, a, a pouring out. They would take their best alcohol, usually wine, and they would pour it out as a drink offering to the Lord. God asked them to do this. God's people, if you read in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about the drink offering. But there was something that, Paul, that God told them to do with this drink offering. They said, don't do it in the desert. Do it when you get to the promised land. 
Pour out a drink offering when you receive what I have promised you already. It was to represent rest, victory, and thanksgiving. That's why he told them to pour it out. In a place of victory, in a place of rest, and as an act of thanksgiving, they were to pour their life out. That's what Paul is talking about here. In Romans 12:1, he puts it this way. We are to offer your body as a living sacrifice. Paul is saying that our act of worship, the greatest thing that we can give is our very lives. That's why Paul was so ready to die because he counted it a joy that he would get to do the ultimate act of worship, the pouring out of his very life and blood for Jesus. How could Paul get so excited about his own death and his own death bringing about the glory of God because he knows that his Jesus went first. Jesus poured out his life. Jesus poured out his blood. In the Old Testament, in order for sins to be forgiven, an animal had to pour out its blood, and the altar had to be sprinkled with blood, and the people had to be sprinkled with blood, and the priest had to be sprinkled with blood. And when Jesus died, they put a spear in his side, and he poured out blood. He offered a once and for all sacrifice for you and for me. And Paul says here, if Jesus went first, I gladly pour out my life as a drink offering, just as he did. And because of this, verse 18, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Joy and rejoicing. It is one of the mega themes of the book of Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 2, verse 11, verses 17 through 18. Chapter 4, verses 4 and 10. Paul talks about joy and rejoicing. And he always talks about it in the midst of talking about his suffering. Because I might die tomorrow, you should have joy. Because I'm pouring my very life out for the gospel and for you, you should have joy. And then he adds this phrase here, rejoicing. The word rejoicing means a state of being. A state of being. It's a Greek word that just means state of being that Paul and the other authors of the New Testament started to use as an act of worship. What he is saying is your whole state of being should be an act of worship to God. In some ways, it is easier to come an ugly cry when Caitlin leads us in worship than it is to lay down our life on Monday morning. But that's what Paul is saying that rejoicing is. It is a embodied, real life, every day laying down of our life because God's energy is willing and working inside of us and changing us one day at a time. So how do we shine? How do we stand out? First, working out our own salvation. Our part, God's part, they're going to be the first two things we talk about. Our part is resting and working. Resting and working. There's two images that I'd like us to have in our head. One is that of resting, of letting go. 
That's what resting is. It's a state of being where we set everything aside and we say God's in control and God is working so I don't have to. So first we rest and then we work. We do what God has asked us to do. We make a plan to grow. We take an equipping class to learn how to study the Bible. We take a soul care weekend that you're going to hear about tonight so you can learn how to minister to others with the gospel. We get Twitter off the phone. We do the things we know the Father is asking us to do because it is God who's doing the work. And that's the second part. Allow God to do the work. This looks like repentance and humility and rest and reliance and prayer. It's allowing God to do the work. It's allowing the spirit that is groaning inside of us that just can't wait to work on our behalf for the honor of the Lord. It's allowing that spirit to do the work. Here is the practical everyday reality that we uh, live out or that we believe based on this passage, and it just doesn't work. Based on this passage, when we read this passage about willing and working for his good pleasure, we keep waiting to have the right motivation to do it, and we keep waiting on some supernatural thing to fall, and we feel like doing it, or we think it all relies on us. I have spent so many years waiting for something supernatural to happen so I feel like doing the right thing or thinking it all relies on me and I just need to get my stuff together. That is not what Paul is talking about. That's not what sanctification looks like. What Paul is writing about here is an embodied acting out of what the Spirit is doing inside of us. He is taking our everyday actions and using them to build the kingdom of God. We may be studying for an exam. We may be entering things into a spreadsheet. We may be taking care of a kid. We may be building something. We may be resting. We may be ministering to someone else. Someone else may be ministering to us. This looks a hundred different ways. But what Paul's saying here is the Spirit wants to do a work in you as you go. Whatever you are doing, whatever God calls you to do tomorrow, Monday morning, when you wake up, he wants to fill it, he wants to use it, and God wants to work a working in you for his good pleasure. We can hold on to this reality as we hold fast to the word of life. We need to pray for a growing dissatisfaction with the things that do not bring life. And we need to cling to the words that really do bring life. So often we set the Bible aside because we say we're not getting anything out of it. It's not about us getting something out of it. It is about clinging on to the word of life and God doing a powerful work day by day by day over time. Hold fast to the word of life and then lean into joy. Lean in to joy. 
I keep waiting for my circumstances to smooth out so that joy will be easier. It's not joy. A life of rejoicing and a life where joy is experienced can happen amidst the suffering and the sin and in the prison and in the death. Paul is experiencing it and he's writing this from prison and he wants them and us to experience that joy as well. We can lean into joy. It's a joy that makes no sense. It's a joy not hinged to our circumstances. It is a joy that he is working in us. And then when we have that kind of joy, we can be poured out. We can rejoice in being poured out. We can suffer with a purpose. My son, a couple weeks ago, sat through the sermon. He is going through an intense time of suffering himself right now. Stomach pain since October. And after the sermon, we came home and he said, was Pastor Josh saying that I'm going to suffer anyway, so I might as well glorify God? Yes. Yes. That's right. Paul's found the secret to joy, and he's telling us about it too. When we live this way, we will shine. We will be an embodied, otherworldly citizen that walks in the power of the Spirit instead of the power of man. And we will shine. We will show that we are not of this world, yet we are here, rooted in this world, doing good for the sake of others and seeing the kingdom come one day at a time. Would you pray with me? Father, because you are holy and worthy of our praise, and because you are working in us to will and to work for your good pleasure, God, I pray that we would live as citizens of heaven and that we would be a joyful church who would shine for you and you would receive all the glory and we would walk in freedom and joy because of all you have already done for us. Amen.